0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. We're two months into our study in Genesis, and we've come to the point this morning in Bible study where we looked at the first six verses of this chapter, culminating in one of the most famous verses in the book of Genesis, probably outside of the creation story, Genesis 15, verse 6, where it says, Abraham believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. God all this time has been talking, verses 12 and 13, about two things, two parts of the promise, offspring and land. If you turn back a page or two to chapter 12, you'll notice that in verse 2, he says, I will make you into a great nation. And again, over in chapter 13, verse 16, he makes the statement, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring be could be counted. And so then again, when we get into chapter 15 this morning, God again tells him, look at the stars, see if you can count them. And Abram looked up into the sky at that countless number of stars in the sky. He saw that swath of milky-colored stars that were innumerable, and he believed that what God said was true. And in his heart, and maybe even with his mouth, he said, may it be so, Lord. And God said, That is my righteousness now imputed onto you, God's righteousness. But he also had been promising about land, not just about a family, but also about land. Again, if you look back in chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And then down in verse 7, in that same chapter, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your offspring. And then in chapter 13, uh, go to verse 14. After Lot had separated from him, it says, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. Look north and south and east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. You jump down to verse 17. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So there was a two-pronged promise, a family and land. And so as we begin verse 7, of chapter 15, the passage that we're going to look at today in our worship time, we come to that second part of the promise. And in verse 7, God says to him, I am Yahweh who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And amazingly, the same Abram that just one verse earlier believed God and God credited to him as righteousness says, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? I think maybe part of the problem was getting offspring is something he would be able to see in his lifetime. But he wasn't sure if he'd be able to see in his lifetime possessing all of this vast land that God had promised him. And so there was a little doubt that crept up in his mind. But you notice God doesn't scold him for it. He doesn't criticize him for it. He says, I have something I want you to do. And so he gave him some instructions. Let's look at them together. In verse 9 of chapter 15, here's what God said to Abram. Bring me a three-year-old cow a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all of these to him, split them down the middle, and laid the pieces opposite of each other. But he did not cut up the birds. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and a great terror and darkness descended on him. We'll get to verse 12 in just a second. But Abram did something in response to a command of God that he was very familiar with. Matter of fact, in much of the ancient world, there was a very ancient practice of making covenants or contracts between two people. In Mesopotamia, there's many, many writings about taking a donkey, killing the donkey, cutting its carcass in half, laying it open. And the two partners of the covenant or the contract would walk between those two carcass halves. And what that signified was, if I don't keep my part of the contract, may I become like this donkey. As a matter of fact, there's a place in Jeremiah, I won't ask you to turn there, but we see a hint of exactly what this covenant or contract or ritual really means. In Jeremiah chapter 34, listen to what God says when the Israelites have obeyed and not kept their part of the covenant they had with God. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me by proclaiming freedom each man for his brother and for his neighbor. I hereby proclaim freedom for you to the sword, to plague and to famine. I will make you a horror to all of the earth's kingdoms. As for those who disobeyed my covenant, not keeping the terms of the covenant they made before me, listen now, I will treat them like the calf they cut in two in order to pass between its pieces." The officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the pieces of the calf will be handed over to their enemies, to those who want to take their life. Their corpses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the wild animals of the land. So in that statement by God, we see this historical tradition, taking these animals, killing them, splitting them in half, and then walking between the two halves of the carcasses, signifying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be like these animals. May I be killed. Pretty solemn stuff. This was not a sacrifice. Notice there's no fire, there's no wood, there's no altar. This is a ritual signifying that we have a contract between us. And Abram was probably thinking, what is God going to demand from me? What am I going to have to do to keep my end of this bargain? This is frightening. I'm working with the God who has just said that he is going to make me into a great people and make my people into a great people. Well, that answer comes to him in a way, not what he expected, I don't think, in this deep sleep that falls on him in verse 12. It says, let me just read it again. A great sleep fell on Abram and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. And listen to what God says in verses 13-13. 16. The Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God tells Abram four things. First of all, he tells them how they will possess the land. By terrible suffering and persecution. He says they will own this land. They will possess this land, but not until they have been foreigners in a land that doesn't belong to them and they have been enslaved and oppressed. Well, that's exactly what happened. After Joseph died and his offspring came along in Egypt, sure enough, for 430 years, they were oppressed. And don't be worried about the 30. I think God was just speaking to Abram in round numbers. The same reason he said, if the fourth generation, they will return. In those days, it was easy for a generation to be 100 years. So it's all one one fabric, all one statement. God says they're going to be gone for four centuries, and then they will come back and inherit the land. Who's going to inherit it? Well, not Abram. I think maybe Abram thought, well, we'll just start here our family, and we'll own some land, and then we'll begin to spread out from there, and more and more things will will become ours until finally we we fill the land. And God says, no, you're going to die in a ripe old age, and you're going to go to sleep with your fathers, but you will not be the one that possesses it. It will be your offspring. When? After a long, long time, much longer than I'm sure Abram expected. And then probably the most important of the four questions was the why. How? How? Who? When? But why? Why? Why did God say you have to wait 400 years? Why did God say you can't have the land right now? Interesting. He says, because the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that, that God is amazingly patient with people. And not just with the Israelites, not just with Abram. These Amorites, God was going to give them the time to live and have the opportunity to come to him. 400 years, four centuries he would give them. And they took advantage of every bit of that time. And they continued more and more and more into evil and wickedness. And finally the day came when God says, it is enough. You have had your time. And suddenly, Two to three million Israelites were right across the border on the other side of the Jordan waiting to come in. This was not an act of vengeance. This was an act of justice because the Amorites had been given the time. God's patience was amazing with them. We look around us today, and we wonder how God can be patient with us, how God can be patient with America, how God can be patient with the world. And a famous pastor of a previous generation said, aren't you, God, aren't you glad that the evil of America— wasn't fulfilled 100 years ago, because then none of us would have been born so we could be born again. So let's thank God for his patience. But God wanted Abram to understand that his children's 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 children would inherit this land, but not in the way that he thought and not in the time that he thought. There was going to be suffering before there would be glory. There was going to be struggle before there was settlement. And Abram needed to know that God was in control of that whole situation. Everything that happened was a part of His divine plan. Now before we go to the second part of this passage, I need to stop for a few minutes and talk a little bit about that concept. Because I think it's interesting that if I had been Abram, I've got to be honest with you, I would have said, okay, wait a minute, maybe we need to think about this, this agreement just a minute. I thought that I was going to get to inherit the land. I thought it would be mine and my children's. And now you're telling me it's going to be 400 years. Imagine, kind of a make-believe scenario, imagine you're living in an apartment, you and your spouse, your kids maybe. in. one day God says to you, I'm tired of you living in this apartment. I'm going to give you a house. It's going to be yours. You're going to own it. You're going to possess it. So you go out and let me lead you. And you find a house that's for rent, and you rent that house, and you sit back and you wait for it to become yours. You wait for a big check to come in the mail or something happens so that you can buy that home and make it your own because God has promised you, I'm going to give you this house as your possession. And God says, oh, uh, by the way, I need to tell you that this house won't be your family's for 400 more years, and most of that time you're not even going to live in this house. Well, that wouldn't be what you expected. You see, we live in this crucible of expectation. Think about Jesus' return. For 2,000 years, every generation of believers has come on thinking, this could be the day Christ could return. And we keep waiting, and we're expecting God to do something. And then we live with that expectation not being fulfilled, just like the writer of Hebrews said about those that did not get to see the fulfillment of the promises that had been made. And so the first thing I need to make sure we understand is that God has no obligation to live up to our expectations of how he will work in history or in our lives. God often brings difficulties into our lives that we would not expect. When Elizabeth Elliot... And Rachel Saint began praying for the Alka Indians while their husbands were flying overhead, dropping gifts down to them, praying that the Alkas would come to Christ. Do you think they ever dreamed in their minds that the way the Alkas would come to Christ was by the murder of their very husbands? Sometimes God works in ways that bring difficulty, and we have to acknowledge the fact that His ways are best. And sometimes His timing is not what we would expect. We live in a world where we measure things by nanoseconds. We want more RAM on our computers. So they takes if it takes that computer three whole seconds to get that transaction done, we've got to speed that thing up. We've got to work faster. We've got to get more things done and because we work so quickly. We work so fast that we now expect what in a previous generation would be a 45-minute sermon crammed into 20 minutes, and we're a little upset if it's 25. Well, I'm lucky you put up with me for 30, but... Bottom line is, everything in our lives, we want to go faster. So what happens is, without us really realizing it, we begin to expect that of God as well. We want God to work at our tempo, at our speed, at our pace. But there's a solution to that. And that is to learn that there is this wonderful tension between our relationships and our expectations. You see, relationships focus on the here and now. Expectations always focus on the not yet, out onto the future. Think about parents. If they live their lives constantly thinking about expectations, then what they do is they're always thinking, well, I can't wait till we get out of diapers. I can't wait till they get to where they can walk. I can't wait till they can get into school and get out of my hair. I can't wait until this and that and the other. And next thing you know, they're gone. And we go, who was that masked man that just went through here? But if we as parents can understand the value of relationships, we can enjoy every stage of our children's lives as they grow. We can relish every new thing that happens, not living our lives looking for what's going to come next, but living in the now. Same way with friendships. Many of us have dear, close friends, and sometimes we'll get crossways with them. Why? Because they don't live up to our expectations. They don't do what we think they ought to do, treat us the way we think we ought to be treated. So what happens is our expectations of them become more important than our relationship to them. So what's the key? What's the answer? It's to realize that if we are going to put relationships ahead of our expectations, we must learn to see relationships as a matter of greater consequence than our expectations. We have to understand there's more value in the relationships that we have than in what we expect out of those relationships. There's a wonderful little children's book written back in the 1940s, but still a wonderful book, not just for children to read. I would encourage you to read if you've never had, have called The Little Prince. It's a story about a little prince that lives on a planet, and he goes and travels— to meet different people, to find out what is consequence, what is important to people. He gets on one planet and there's a king there. And for that king, the most important thing is that he be obeyed. It is so important to him that he will only order things that were already going to happen. Like he would order the sun to set or the leaves to turn colors in the fall because of consequence to him was being obeyed. He goes to another planet where there's a conceited man. And what's most important to him, what he values as most consequential is that he be admired by those around him. He goes to another planet where there's a tippler. Remember what a tippler is? Someone who likes to tipple their, with their drink. And all the, this, that matters to him is where is he going to find his next drink? There's a businessman who values facts and figures, a lamplighter, who values the duties he has to perform. There is a geographer who values things that do not change. And finally, this little prince comes to realize that the thing that has the most consequence to him is one little rose back on his home planet he meets up with a fox. And this fox, in talking with the little prince, says to him, it is the time you have wasted for your rose that makes your rose so important. The time that you have wasted on your rose. You see, beloved, we have to learn that the time that we waste in our relationship with God is what makes that relationship so important. And the time that He wastes working on us in our lives is what makes us so important to Him. And so, I just wanted to stop long enough and make that application because so often we let our expectations of God become more important than our relationship with Him. And then that blends into how we treat each other as well. Well, after God tells him these things, we've got these carcasses laying out there. Something amazing happens. something that I know Abram was not expecting. Look at what happens in verse 17. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot. Now, I don't know if you know. I didn't know until I did some research on this. This is not like a little swallowing. This was the thing you would bake bread in. It was like a portable oven that would glow red from the heat so that bread dough could be put in and made. This fire pot and a torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. Now stop right there because that is one of the most amazing things that you will read in the book of Genesis. We had these carcasses that are laying out. And Abram is expecting he's going to have to walk between those two carcasses and swear to his life that he will do whatever God tells him to do. But when Abram looks up, it's not him that's walking between the carcasses. Beloved, grab this. God walks between the carcasses. And that's his saying to Abram, Abram, I promise you this will happen. I myself will die if I fail to keep your promise. And we know that God never dies. And yet he humbled himself— came in what we call a theophany. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, a a literal visual representation of himself, just like the burning bush was for Moses. And he passes himself between those pieces of dead animals, saying, I swear by my own life that I will keep my promise to you. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Wow, God himself ratifies this covenant. Now, I got to ask you, what more could God do? What greater thing could God do than to literally humble himself, take this representation of himself in the torch and the flaming pot and walk between these carcasses, literally committing his own life to being obedient to the promise that he had made to Abram. The only thing I can think of that he would do that could ever be any greater than that would be to literally come in human form and live with us so that we could experience him and learn who he is. That's exactly what he did, wasn't it? That's exactly what he did in Christ. You remember Philippians 2, we've been studying it on Saturday nights. He humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, walked among us so that we could learn what it means for God to make a promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will die for you. The only thing greater than Genesis 15 is what happened on that dark hill of Calvary. When Jesus Christ, God himself in flesh, the king, priest, ordained king of righteousness and peace, stepped into history, lived among us so that he could show us that God's promises can never be revoked. So, we start out with a promise and a question. Way back there in verse 7 when God says, I will give you this land. And Abram says, how will I know? And today, God offers another promise. I will give you eternal life if you will trust me, if you will believe me. You see, all Abram had to do in this covenant was just trust and believe God. Count on him rely on him. That was what had impressed God in verse 6. When Abram believed what God had told him, then God imputed his righteousness onto Abram, made him his child. And so today, God comes to us and says, I promise you, That if you will surrender your life in obedience to my son, if you will make him your king of righteousness, your king of peace, your king and priest, then I will love you, shape you, mold you, guide you, direct you, instruct you, protect you. But it may not be in a way that you expect and it may not be on your timetable. I promise by my very life that I will do this for you. And the question is, what will you do? Will you believe him and trust him? Or will you doubt him? That's true for us as a church. I didn't go back and look up the exact date, but about five years ago, we made a covenant with the Lord. We said, Lord, if you will help us, we will commit almost $2 million of our future income to be able to purchase an old, dilapidated nursing home and convert it into a place where children and young people and adults and seniors and special needs persons and Christmas tree decorators can meet and we can minister to this community. This will become our public face to the community. And God says, if you will make that commitment to to me, I promise you, I will help you to fulfill it. I think every one of us that prayed, we took that first covenant, believed that God was saying to us, I will enable you. Now, can I be completely transparent with you? Did any of us expect that in the next five years from that date to now, our attendance would drop by about 15%? That we would lose 15% of our congregation? I didn't. I thought we'd have grown by 15%. Now, that doesn't mean that the people left because of the covenant promise. I don't mean that at all. God had his reasons, and he allowed people to leave. Many of them moved, got new jobs, and went to other places. Some of them, there were just other issues. But that's not the important point. The important point is that God said, my promise hasn't changed to you. My promise is, I will enable you to fulfill your covenant commitment if you will trust me. And in the next few weeks, we're going to begin that process of saying, Lord, we do trust you. You're going to be getting a letter and then a phone call, and you're going to be invited to go to someone's home or maybe out to the beacon for just a relaxed time of talking and visiting about the next step, ensuring the vision for the future. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, do I trust God's promise or not? Even though he may have not done exactly what I thought he was going to do, do I trust him? Do I believe him? Just as importantly, and maybe more importantly, is what God has promised you in your personal life. What has he promised to you? I will be with you. I will walk with you. I will never leave you. I will guide you. I will protect you. I will watch over you. But it may not be the way you expect, and it may not be in the way that you set your timing. But you have to remember, God says, I'm not under obligation to you. I will work out what is best for you in my way and in my time. So the question today, whether you are a believer or not yet a believer, is will you trust God's promise? Will you trust Him to do what He says He will do? He doesn't ask you to commit a thing except your heart and your trust. I remember when I was in seminary, I had a paper for a theology class, a 20-page paper I had to write on a particular book. And I read that book. I literally outlined every paragraph of that book. It took me seven weeks to outline that book and write that paper. I got the paper back. I had a C C+ on it. I went to Dr. Tupper, my professor, and I expressed to him my disappointment. I said, Dr. Tupper, I am really disappointed that I only got a C-plus on this paper. I worked probably 50 to 60 hours on this paper to get it ready. I would have thought I would have gotten better than a C-plus. And he looked at me and he said, Stephen, for whatever reason, my professors always to like to call me Stephen. Stephen, if I were going to give you your grade based on the amount of time that you spent on the paper, I would just pass out time sheets and have everyone fill them in and then give them grades accordingly. I'm not interested in how much time you spent. That's your job. What I'm interested in is what is the quality of the product? And he was right. You see, we cannot buy God's favor by how much time we spend in serving Him, or what kind of things we do, or how much money we put in the offer. Those are, those are givens. We do that out of a heart of thankfulness. What God wants, what impresses God, if I can use that word, is are we doing it from a heart of trust? When we put that offering in the offering, we put that tithe, even though we know at times it's hard to give that 10%, is it out of a sense of hoping we'll get something back from God in exchange or out of a heart of trusting that he can do more with 90% than we can with 100. When we give up certain things in order to give more time for serving him here on mission projects and ministry, is it because we're hoping we'll get some kind of a favor back from him or because we trust him? And he says, I can take what you do and I can multiply it and use it for my glory. You see, that's what God is looking for. He has made a promise he has walked between the carcasses and said, I will be faithful. And all he asks from us is, will you trust me? That is the question that we have to answer today. So with that in mind, let's pray together. Father, we do love you. We love you passionately. We are so Thankful to you for looking down on us with patience and with grace and with mercy and sending your son to pay the penalty for our sins, taking our place on the cross. Father, today we look at Abram, the promise you made to him, his uncertainty and your revelation that you are in charge of time and circumstances and you have sworn by your very self that you will perform what you have promised. Our job is just to trust you and focus on the relationship, not on our expectations. So Father, in these few moments, as we sing together, and you're working on hearts right now, I can sense that, that you are working on people's hearts. I ask that you would Help us to say, as Abram did when he looked up into that beautiful night sky, may we, like him, say, may it be so. I believe you. And put our trust completely and fully in him. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it.